Welcome. This is Women Behind Wool, a podcast introducing you to the female face of the Australian wool industry. It's such an interesting question because it took me ages to get my head around that my ordinary day is extraordinary to somebody else. Today's guest, Maggie McKellar, lives on a fine wool farm on the east coast of Tasmania with her partner. But Sky, you know Maggie through her work as a writer. Yes, I do. In fact, I think that, I mean, my interest uh, is writing and podcasting and I do see Maggie popping up frequently, as I think some of our listeners may do as well. She has a column in Country Style uh, in and in Grazy Her, and she has also written for Galar magazine. And all of these columns seem to centre around a commentary of her day-to-day life on that fine wool farm um, on the east coast of Tasmania. And that's basically the reason that we wanted to get her on Women Behind Wool is because I think that she has really beautifully honed the art of explaining how a fine wool farm works to uh, the general public she's got this um she just seems to have got the balance right she is a bit educational not in any way condescending she writes beautifully about it so it almost seems a bit romantic Mm. and um and also has a good way of breaking down the tricky elements of of farming so and the other thing that I love about Maggie is that I've interviewed her a few times and every time I see her she's wearing wool she's always wearing a Lady K jumper pen which I think (laughs) (laughs) which I know well you know it's funny that you say that I do of course I I do love that but it's funny that you say that because um the first time I sort of knew Maggie's name I was reading her column and she was describing the highs and lows of um, lambing season and explaining how, you know, you, you're so, it's so exciting and it's cute and you're so hopeful and all this new life abounds and all that sort of stuff. But at the same time, it's absolutely heart-wrenching if you see a lamb deserted by its mother or a mother that's died giving, you know, a year giving birth in the paddock and that sort of thing. And she just, the way she described it was so unbelievably perfect like it just hit a note in my soul I just completely resonated with me and to the point where I felt like I had to just write her look her up and write her a little message just to let her know um how much it affected me and then we realized oh yeah I know you I bought one of your jumpers and it's like oh well there we go the world is a smaller place than we think yeah I think the other awesome thing that I love about this interview is she really gets the quirkiness of the merino. So she grew up in, um, she actually grew up in in the country. I'm sorry, she actually grew up in the city, but her grandparents had a farm at Cudal in central west New South Wales, but it wasn't a fine wool farm. It was a British breed. So they had, um, they started off in Dorsets and they moved into Pole Dorsets. And I think they had black faced and white faced Suffolk. And so the temperament of those sheep is completely different, not to mention that they, mm. the, their quality of wool is so totally different. Um, anyway, moving into Merino sheep, she has been able to, as a writer, 
she's made it her mission to step back and observe and make mental note of how they their temperament and how, and how they do things and she's she just nails that too it's like that the merino mother can be um we talk about a neurotic mum so just completely bonkers would chase you um until as if it wanted <laughs> to kill you to protect its lamb but then also in the same breath would have a lamb and walk away from it and it doesn't make any sense but they once you get once you kind of take time to step back and get to know them a bit more, which she has done, um, it does make sense to her and she can describe it beautifully. If that, does that make sense? <laughs> Long oh, I love that. It. I love that. Yeah, such a different way of looking at the, or a different way of portraying the industry. That's what's so interesting about what Maggie does. Yeah, this podcast, this interview is really about education and she so successfully bridges she's passionate about it and she very successfully bridges that divide between city and country and what farm life is like and I think there's as we kind of all know there's a bit more of a yearning for that here she is I think it was a bit of a shock when I moved down to Tasmania and met the merino because it was like meeting another animal you know I'd never met sheep that would have a lamb and take a look at a ute across the paddock and disappear from that lamb. <laughs> yeah, they're crazy. So, yeah, and and just you know the the robust nature of British those British breeds, um, how tough they can be. Um, having said that, the merinos must be one of the you know you, you just look sometimes and think how are you still alive at the situations they can get themselves into. But um, so they can be incredibly tough too, but they seem to, <laughs> I know there's a saying that Marinos are born to die, but um, <laughs> they seem, yeah, it, it was just a shock to me. It, it really is different. And when I first came down here, which is over a decade ago now, um, Jim was in the process of, of changing bloodlines. And so that is my dog snoring. I'm so sorry, does that come up? I'll just give her a nudge. <laughs> yeah, so he was in the, my partner was in the process of kind of changing bloodlines. He had working towards a bigger frame sheet with a lot stronger mothering instinct. And that has been a real pleasure to kind of watch our flock change over the last decade. And, you know, now be able to drive into the paddock and during lambing checks and not have mothers walk away from their lambs and the whole thing's been really interesting, but it's a very long-winded way of answering your question, when did sheep come into my life? Um, yeah, so I started off with the wool being a, a kind of a awkward byproduct <laughs> that was really coarse and not, not like it, you know, there was no beauty in it. Um, and I didn't really understand that until I came down here and kind of was like, oh, my God, this is like the fleece is another living thing. When it first comes off the sheep's back, it's just, it feels alive, which is so different to the fleece of a, you know, a Suffolk sheep. That's so true, yeah. isn't it? That's why those times in the shearing shed are so celebrated and magical for Merino farmers because the fleece is alive and it's <laughs> like it's springy and fresh and warm and soft. Yeah. And, all of your years were culminating on the table in front of you, on the wool table in front of you. 
Yeah, and not only all your year's work, but the breeding that goes into that, the sort of the selection, the process of classing the ewes, of classing rams, of going to ram sales and selecting rams that have characteristics that are going to match up with the breeding aims that you have for your ewes. And it's almost, you know, I love it. My job at shearing time is cooking, which I used to hate, but I've now given in and embraced. Um, and often Jim will arrive home with a, you know, a handful of fleece and say, look at this, you know, this is what we've got today. Or, and, you know, the first time the maidens are uh, shorn is always, you know, that the first time that they're shorn after being lambs, it's always so exciting to see what we're getting. So, yeah, it is magical, really. But it's a long-term magic. <laughs> yes, which I hope that people can sort of glean and learn from, um, like over the course of this podcast, that that is why I've had the same conversation with a few others this year that in times of drought, it is very, very difficult to sell off sheep. It's not a simple thing that don't have enough feed, so sell them and you can buy back later. It's just not as easy as that. No, it's it's a little bit like a, a dairy farmer. You know, you spend years, decades creating a flock that you are proud of and that a huge amount of money and, and labour has gone into through the drought years, are you numbers when anything with the slightest fall got put into the fat mob? Or in some ways, I think the drought has tightened up bring aims. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. You, you know, so you're, you're really looking at um, trying to refine what you're aiming for. And I think keeping in mind that that broad aim of, of what we're looking for is just a really beautiful product that feels pleasurable to pick up and that you can you want it against your skin there's no discomfort there there's no prickle there's no yeah so that's always what we're aiming for and on the on the other side is an animal that's robust and can tolerate drought conditions and is a good mother and and the cold (laughs) yeah Mm. yeah what's your role on the farm there um uh, we are a small operation. It's just the two of us. We have contract workers coming in, obviously, at shearing time, but people at shear for us are just a wonderful group. Um, I count them as friends as well as amazing workers. But my role is, well, I guess I'm just a right-hand man kind of thing, <laughs> a bit of jack-of-all-trades. Like uh, That's what Jim... every woman says, isn't it? <laughs> Honestly, yeah. we all do say, oh, we're the right-hand man. We just help out when we're needed. Um, totally, yeah. I mean, so I see pivotal. myself as a, as a writer foremost. Like that's like my days are spent at my computer, but that's a seasonal thing. Like if Jim needs a hand in the yards, he'll just call up on the two-way and I'll go over and give him a hand in the yards or if he needs a mob board in or something like that. I love going out and helping muster. Yeah, so just... Anything that needs doing, I guess I'm there. And we really will talk over RAM catalogues. He'll like, so it's it's a funny thing. He makes, it's his vision really, but it's a vision that we share. And I think he's enjoyed me being part of that too. I'm really enthusiastic about, he'll say, come and see, come out and see something. and, And that's a really nice thing to do. And at lambing time, I am very involved too. So we do the lambing run together. And I'm pathetic at driving past anything that's hasn't got a mother. <laughs> so I, on, on the other hand, I you know it's just like my aim is never to have any potty lambs. 
you fail at day one? Oh, totally. Except that I do have, I have got very good at the force fostering. So, so if I see a ewe that has a dead lamb or something like that, then we will catch her and bring her back to the yards and I will foster, I would foster 95% of the potties that we have um, sort of aim to have only two or three pets by the end. And they actually are worth their weight in gold, those pets, because we also have a farm stay cottage that everybody wants to pat the lambs. And of course, <laughs> unless it's a bottle raised baby, it's not interested in being patted. That's exactly <laughs> right. I think it's amazing that you're able to um, remother the lambs. It's such a tricky job and takes so much patience. Oh, it takes so much patience. But I kind of love it because you're working with individual animals where mostly you're not doing that um, at any other stage of production. And I love the transformation of bringing a you in who thinks she's going to die because she's offered, you know, she's been separated from her mob and she's highly suspicious of you. And then watching over sort of a matter of some of them are really fast. Some of them only take an hour or so to sort of quieten down. Others take a couple of days. And just watching that transformation of learning, they learn to trust you. And, and yeah, it's really interesting. And I have over the years just learned to sit back and sit on the sit on a stump in the sheep yards and just watch the interactions and see what different ewes are doing. And yeah, so it, and I think that feeds into my writing as well, because my next book, um, as you know, Sky is provisionally called the lambing diaries and it's out next year early next year but it's it's essentially sort of set around a a diary that I kept through um, a couple of lambing seasons here and one of the aims of that book is to sort of um, break down the mystery of what's involved in getting (laughs) a fleece from the back of a sheep onto into a jumper that somebody in the somebody can wear and exactly how that works Tell me about you've always been a writer and or you've been writing for a long time and when it occurred to you that this fodder, as in writing about sheep and where you're living, was was the thing that you should be writing about? It's such an interesting question because it took me ages to get my head around that my ordinary day is extraordinary to somebody else and that that would be... I talked to my publisher and said, oh, I'm thinking of writing an essay on this terrible lambing season we're having in the drought. And I started telling her about it. And she's like, oh, no, no, that's a book. That's not an essay. Write it as a book. And I was like, "Mm, a book. But I've always loved how watching animals kind of teach us about ourselves. And I think this, so taking what I do on a daily basis and drawing, allowing those moments, like, a breath almost, like a, a bit of space around them to speak. Yeah, it made me see that we have, as a society, kind of lost a lot of connections to how our fibre and, you know, meat is raised. 30, 40, 40 years ago, God, I'm getting so much older, 40 years ago, so many people had a relative who, they cousins who they went and had their, you know, September holiday, school holidays at the farm and, and they rode on the back of the ute and they might muster a paddock and and it 
became sort of something in their head that they, you know, they might have a home cooked chop on the barbecue. That just doesn't happen anymore. There seems to be such a stronger divide between country and city. And so I thought if I could write about my life here in a way that's really approachable and really readable um, and not technical, then, yeah, that might help people to understand that we are animals too and that you can't kind of make these judgment calls and say, I, you know, I'm completely separate from the clothes that we wear. Hmm. And the meat that we eat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We're just talking about, well, your your book is called The Lambing Diaries, or it's, it's about a lambing season and the you, which is the female sheep, I think is um, so akin to mothers, generally speaking, as humans, like the neurotic mother who's just given birth. Okay, so one of the themes of the book is about mothering and it's the parallels are so, and I, I'm, I swear that, I have since I have become a mother and gosh my kids are grown up now but um you never you never, you never help a you have a lamb without I spend the whole time saying I'm so sorry I'm so sorry <laughs> and, she, and often my hands are smaller if the you's having trouble so you know and Jim's hands and he's got big farmer hands and he can't get in there and but yeah, every so often you're we talking strike about something. actual, actually lamb, yeah, like having actually, to help deliver the lamb. That's exactly right. You know, sometimes a you will have a lamb that's legs one leg that meant to come um, with both their legs forward. Sometimes one of their legs. I'm telling you something you already know, Sky. But um, no, this is for every, everybody else listening, you know, um, you can get all sorts of presentations. They can come bum first, like just like humans. Or they can come one leg back, and and often the you just can't get and get it out, and they'll just they will die if you don't help them. So, yeah, that's that's something that we do. Oh, it doesn't happen a lot, but in the drought it happens more. You've got animals that are stressed that are not as strong, or if you've been feeding them, um, you get greedy feeders, so their lambs are too big. All the problems seem to just get blown up in the drought. Um, so that's kind of what I was writing about. How do you gauge what the reception is going to be for that and also the level of detail that you need to go into to properly educate because that is actually essentially what you're doing? Yeah, it's a really hard writing task to write in such a way that people can understand what on earth I'm talking about. You know, my editor's like, what's a race? Oh, that's the bit where the sheep run up in the yards. And what's a cast? What's a cast sheep? Oh, that's a sheep that can't get up. And sometimes you just have to flip them over and they get up and run away. (laughs) So good. Um, The perfect yardstick, your publisher. (laughs) Yes. So, you know, I'm dealing with, so, so, but just trying to write that information in a lyrical way is quite challenging. Um, But, I think I like I'm pretty sure I think I've done it like I am pleased we're we're well into it now it um it's it's basically it's basically finished so we're just going through the final the final bits that seem to take forever but um yeah my my editor and publisher are good very good yardsticks on on terminology um but they also love the romance of the language you know the, the maidens which first time mothers never thought about that 
Never thought about that. Yeah, so so it was kind of like a, it was really good for me to see that this is a whole language that is kind of to be, you know, what's a rouse about? What's what's a board? What's the shearing board? What's what's the table? Like so trying to explain to people so that they can visualize themselves in that shed is is something that I've worked really hard at. So, yeah. We need a little dictionary, don't we? Yes. 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 Yeah. They're all such beautiful words. We take them very much for granted. (laughs) Yeah, they are. That. Yeah. I've done that through the book. Is sort of give definitions of how how that all works. Have you? Yes. And you also have um, a newsletter which is called the Sit Spot. And while it's not particularly specifically focused on the lambing cycle it's sort of an observation of your daily life and tasks and things that happen in, in Tassie and on your farm are you, are you trying to do something similar with that and I, I suppose my ultimate question is how is it being received by the public and do they want this kind of translation yeah I have the dipping my toe in the newsletter world was um has been the most wonderful experience and I think the idea behind the sit spot was to create a moment in um, people's busy lives where they would have sort of a five to eight minute read over a cup of coffee um, and that it would just still them and that, you know, the sit spot is a birding term and it's about um, returning to a place and watching what's around you. And I wanted to create a place in the on the internet where people would get a weekly deep breath, as it were. And, and also that, and it was, so it's essentially, I've always thought of my journal, which I write in most days as my sit spot. It's the place where I observe, write down my observations. And I thought if I could capture one of those journal entries a week and give people a sense of the movement of the seasons of um what it means to live on a sheep farm, um, you know, this week we put the rams out, but what does that actually mean? Um, I think my audience is threefold and this is just a gut feeling. It's not just from comments and I don't know what a successful newsletter is, but I can't believe how fast my newsletter has grown. It's been really, really fun. I think I have people that live in the city and in suburbia who just feel like they have this moment that is completely outside of their lives where they can look forward to something, a little bit of just something out of their ordinary. And then the other part of my um, audience, I think, is women who have lives just like mine, who feel seen, (laughs) who write to me and say, oh, yes, that's exactly what I was doing. Or, oh, I get so frustrated over being halfway through a job and having to be called the way to go and open gates or whatever um, and yes. and then my I, I think I also have a you know hopefully a writing audience to people that are interested in writing and that's where the sit spot sits um, in my kind of writing stable but it's kind of like um, your podcast guy it's an it's opening an accessibility to it's kind of saying come in behind the farm gate come and see what our lives are like this is what our workday looks like, which is so totally different to a nine to five, you know, office job. And I've had my 
editor say that to me before when I've said, oh, this is so boring. Nobody's going to want to read this. She's like, Mags, you are describing my fantasy life. Keep Mm. going. But the sit spot is, it's also a wonderful way of um, forging personal connections where people can actually respond to the newsletter and say, oh, I didn't understand this or um, what did you mean when you said that? And it's different to my writing for Country Style or, or other freelance work because you know, sometimes I can't, I have to be a bit, you know, you have to be a bit careful of the country style audience. <laughs> but, but here I can say how it is, you know, it's like, ah, oh, this happened and it was pretty brutal and that's life and death and that's what's so hard. But actually the, the life and death that we face raising animals is the same as the human society we live in. We're just really good at hiding away from it. So I guess my writing is a way of saying that joy and peace exists right alongside of grief and death, like trying to hold those dualities always. Mm-hmm. Um, very yeah. distilling it down to very fundamental Yeah, and, and, and things specific, specific moments, you know, just mm. taking a small moment and asking it to say something bigger or allowing it to say something bigger. When you take a step back and now you are so successfully bridging the divide, and I really hate that term, but I Mm. want to ask a question about it because I feel like for many years this bridging the divide um, phrase has been just so overused and everybody has been trying to do it. And now it is kind of happening in various different ways. But, and you did mention it a bit, earlier but what what did you observe or what did you think about this dis this disconnect between what actually happens on farms and and society generally people are living in the cities I hate to generalize in that way but we do need to generalize yeah we need to generalize to have the conversation because it is a fact that um it's there's very much two worlds like I think that the more we can talk about how we raise animals and these sort of innovative ways like podcasts and, and, and newsletters and hopefully my book will draw in a whole other audience on understanding that we cannot separate ourselves from what we need to eat and clothe ourselves. And, you know, wool is such a wonderful product in so many ways and when you think about what goes into making a plastic jumper and the environmental degradation on that then for too long we haven't pushed back and made a case for you know what a sustainable product wool is and how long it lasts and and what it looks like to be a merino you which or, or a merino weather and like sometimes I think our merino weathers are the luckiest sheep on the place. They don't have to have a lamb every year. All they have to do is turn up in the shearing shed once a year or twice a year, once to be crutched and once to be shorn. And then yeah, they're left um, alone for the rest yeah, of the year. Yeah, and they exist in these sort of microcosms of like I always think they all work together. I love going out walking and thinking, what are the boys up to? You know, and, and watching them move as a mob and um so so weathers weathers are to explain sorry yeah so weathers are um, boy sheep with no balls (laughs) (laughs) no way around it (laughs) (laughs) 
so they just um, and that the main their main part in the farm operation is to grow wool yes yeah. and they get the the, the the hard bit in their lives is that they do get the worst ground um but in season like we've been having they've got it good at the moment um mm. so i yeah just returning to your question though and i i don't feel like i've answered that very well i didn't ever see myself as being i almost didn't really understand that there was a breakdown in knowledge between how meat and fibre was produced and like it always used to sh- shock me that people thought thought that that for a sheep to be have its fleece taken from it it was skinned alive you know that mm. those terrible like I was like what are you talking about just the fact that there was that low level of knowledge that they would think that that was what was going on and because of course you did grow up in the city and so yeah yeah but but you had connection to the land yes exactly so and I was so keen on keen on acquiring knowledge and and we were out there every school holiday my grandparents um every school holidays um and then you know returning there to live and I I realized again that my children's friends in the city just had no concept of what a sheep was or or the chops in the supermarket came from a, a lamb or that an egg came out of a chook's bum. <laughs> I just think that people who are living on um, sheep and wool farms do labour. I mean, even me as a journalist, about how they can better tell their story. But perhaps it doesn't need to be laboured over. It just is a simple, it's just a simple explanation of what you do. Do you agree with that? Is that what you found? Like you can never turn your nose up at ignorance. Um, So often people have these really strong preconceived ideas of what you're doing. And then if you say, no, no, come in and and have a look, um, then or or just write about like my my writing about it. I had never realised that's what I was doing. It's been a bit of an accidental path that I found myself sort of writing this way. But it's always been something I've been really passionate about, sort of explaining that you can't cut yourself off from the way that we, we really need to know how food is raised and how the fibre that we wear is raised. And I think you know, people like um, Sadie Cresterman and um, Matthew Evans down here on Fat Pig Farm, and there's a lot of people doing some really good work at having people in behind the farm gate and saying, well, this is what happens. And this even and this podcast that you and Penny are doing is the same thing. It's I really hope it goes out beyond. I hope it goes out into people that think, oh, how do you get a woolen jumper? Yeah. Yes. We do too. Or how, yeah. Speaking of wool, Maggie, you're always. I think every time I see you, because I've interviewed you quite a few times, you are dressed head to toe in in wool. Tell me about the climate where you are and why I need to wear wool and why I love wearing uh, That's It's so funny. If if I go to Sydney now, I'm always dressed like I'll have a woolen jumper on and, you know, I go to Sydney and think, oh, my God, it's so hot. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we live in a – we actually live in a fairly temperate part of Tasmania. Uh, it's I always think of it as the Bahamas of Tasmania because oh, we right. have the beautiful white sand beaches and the crystal, crystal water. And the water temperature is about 
between 15, like hovers between 12 and 15 degrees, so it's not warm. Yeah. You can have days on end where it doesn't get above sort of nine degrees, but it's so it's perfect wool weather because our house, we live in this old stone house, it's freezing. Um, so I feel like I spend at least six months, maybe longer, dressed in, I have, you know, those lovely wool jeans that you can get. Oh, yes. And, um, yeah, I wear a woolen jumper and I've got my my beautiful auntie um, has knitted me a writing rug of wool and alpaca. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's so beautiful. It's just... uh, so you just put it on your, on your lap when you're writing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, so and yeah, so from wool that she spun, she spins um, all her wool and we sent her, she came to stay uh, a couple of a month or so ago and I sent her home with two coloured fleeces. Um, that would be another part that Jim and I, I love it when we get a black lamb. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, oh, look at that fleece. That's <laughs> uh, mine. The, yeah, yeah. 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 Gosh. I've even got my, you know, I've got hand warmers that I put up, that I wear most oh, of the year. Everything is wool, yes. And yeah. I see you often wearing your beanie. Is your beanie wool? Yeah, again, my beanie's wool that my my same aunt made from wool that she spins. And I, I, it's very much part of our life. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Maggie, just to end, if you could tell me what it is about the sheep that you are so drawn to and what you love so much about, about them, it. <laughs> Uh, so I think they're such an unusual creature. They're so, you know, it's it's a relationship that goes both ways. They need us because otherwise they'll die. Um, they need to be shorn every year. They need to be wormed. They need to be, there's a whole lot of husbandry that goes alongside of having a healthy, healthy sheep. So there's that. So it's kind of like, and we need them. Like they, we need their wool. We need their meat. and um, I find that a really interesting relationship and I also find it so interesting that like as a mob they can be so stupid or frustrating you know to move or to you have to think like it and then you th- think well they can't if you've got if you're trying to move 900 lambs or something <laughs> the back doesn't know what the front's doing and the middle doesn't know so they become something bigger than themselves mm. and then when you deal with them as individuals they they sort of each of them do have personalities it's so strange and until you can um, work with them a little bit and, and overcome their mistrust and um, that it's kind of like you've got to this sounds so silly reassure them that they're not going to die you know that you've got to get past that sort of blind panic and then they emerge as individuals and I find that really fascinating and of course as the more they have contact with people the more interesting they become so yeah I just love watching them um (laughs) they're not as romantic as dealing with like both my kids seem to have gone into the cattle industry which is really industry interesting but um yeah there's something so utilitarian so sort of every man about every person I should say about the sheep (laughs) that sounds does that sound silly it's just a just think you can think they're so stupid and yet I've got an old ewe at the moment that's um in the yards and just watching her pick through she's not she was cast so she's sort of just trying to get it going I don't know whether we will but um 
but just watching her select what she wants to eat from the different grasses growing in the yards was watching a gopher one over the other and yeah that instinct is really interesting I just love watching them I think they teach us about ourselves I love that you watch them so closely and I just thank you so much for speaking with us on Women Behind Wool and I love all the work that you're doing in this way to educate people, which I think was actually never your full desire, but it's it's absolutely doing that in a, in a very different emotional, social kind of way. So thank you, Maggie. <laughs> it's a pleasure, Sky. Thank you for listening to another episode of Women Behind Wall. We hope you're enjoying these stories and um and we'd love for you to share them with your friends and and let us know on instagram if you've been listening and if you've enjoyed it you can find us at women behind wool um, and give us your feedback we'd love to hear what you think <laughs>